0: Hello, beautiful beings. Welcome to the Village Medicine Podcast. Our sacred intention is to host a respectful and honest conversation among a diverse collective of healthcare practitioners and advocates. We explore health topics from a truly open and integrative medical approach. I am Dr. Tara Shelby, Medical Director of Village Medicine Seattle, and I'm here today with our spiritual director, the one and only Shar Sundas.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: We're also here with our super awesome, Christina Pike, <laughs> Director of Psychiatric Medicine at Village Medicine. Hello. And special thanks to Camellia Jade, our fantastic audio engineer. Today's podcast topic is the future of medicine. To join us for this conversation, we're ecstatic to host the great Dr. Carrie Rose. Kerry graduated with her medical degree and master's in public health from the University of Michigan. Her residency was in family medicine at Swedish Medical Center here in Seattle, Washington, and she's also a certified practitioner in functional medicine. Dr. Rose has been in practice since 2002, taking care of patients of all ages with a focus in integrative approaches to health and healing. She is passionate about providing care for patients with complex chronic diseases Dr. Kerry enjoys the intersection of modern and ancient technologies and loves to explore how these applications can be used for optimal health. Welcome, Dr. Kerry. Thank you, Tara. So glad to be here. Hooray. So tell us a little bit about how did you choose a career in medicine? Well... I I often say that it it kind of chose
2: me, and I'm pretty sure it's something in my astrological chart has pointed to me going into mm-hmm. into the healthcare field. But because um, I actually started in cultural anthropology, that was my my degree mm-hmm. in um, college, uh, also from the University of Michigan, was in cultural anthropology. Um, although I did take uh, pre med classes at that time, and you know what I what I was fascinated by. Um, is stories so people's stories, and that was what led me into anthropology um, and just you know studying obviously different cultures, but really the stories that come out of of cultures and out of individuals as a part of you know a, a larger group. And couldn't really see what I was going to do in terms of a career in cultural anthropology. I think I wished. Now maybe I'd had a little bit more creativity at that time in my life, but you know, my father was a doctor, and so that was a known quantity for me. I I, I knew what that path looked like, and um, so I decided just to go ahead and apply to medical school. Um, so I waited a year to apply, and then I I got in, and then I waited another year. I said, "Hey, I need another year." Took two years, and I said, "Okay, I'm here. I might as well I might as well go and just try it." And then I in the middle, I also took another two years off and you know it, it kind of was a circuitous route but um but in the end i was really glad that i finished and um because what i found was in actually practicing medicine i mean medicine really is all about stories i mean when we are sitting with patients it's all about you know their story and and their need to tell that story which is you know as you guys all know it's one of the most important pieces of the of the healing encounter so mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah, true so that was basically how i got into it and of course family medicine was just the right fit for me because again, it's just, you know, it's, it's so much more humane, so much more about just those interpersonal relationships and the long-term relationships with patients. So that
0: was, that was an easy choice for me. Awesome. So we'd love to hear about your vision for the future of medicine or what sparks this vision within you. What are you calling
2: for? Well, um, you know, it's a, it's a big topic, obviously. And so, <laughs> what's the future of medicine? Yeah, so, so, um, so in, in a few words. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think you know, just to talk about the future. I mean, what I, I really you know want to talk about first is is the present. You know, of course, you know, the past and the present, but really, like where where medicine has been and where it's been operating, really, since I was in practice, um, which is you know the the first thing that we, you know, always, that I always like to talk about is the fact that it's really at this time in kind of in all of our lives, it's the first time that medicine has really been, not been run by clinicians. It's been, it's run by administrators, people mostly with business orientation, business backgrounds. And that has a huge influence on, on doctors, all clinicians and on patients and i don't think it's a good one so the the way it's structured in terms of how we need to operate day to day is is basically dictated by people who have not been in practice they don't know what it's like to sit in a room with a patient and all the things that we're dealing with on a day to day basis so i think that you know just at a starting point we need to have more clinicians more people who are actually on the front lines sitting in the room discussing like what what does the future of medicine look like? Like, how do we need to ch- change the structure so that it is sustainable for doctors, for patients, you know, just for anybody practicing? And, you know, and it really shows up in in the way doctors are burning out um, in the and yeah. nurses and all healthcare providers. I mean, the rates of burnout, the rates of depression, the rates of suicide are just unbelievable. And, you know, nobody really talks about it. I mean, there is a little bit more Said about it now. There's, a, I think, a concept that you know we were just talking about called moral injury, which I think is a really important topic that is now just getting some press. I think there was an article in the Washington Post about it last week, and um, and so I think that you know at a starting point, people who are actually on the front lines, who are seeing patients day to day, need to be designing the structure of how of how we practice and what and really what are the what are the priorities? You know, like how do we prioritize the things that really impact patients um, and really impact the health of the whole population? So
0: it stuck out to me that you said you took a couple years off during medical school, during your training in I did. itself. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing with us why?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I was I was someone who was always just like I was good at school, you know, like I was good at taking tests, I was, you know. I was going to think probably a lot of doctors can relate to this, where you give me a textbook and you give me some questions, it's, it's, I can do it. You know, I, I sort of had that skill, you know, for what for whatever it's worth. And, um, you know, so I just kind of did the things. I didn't really, I wasn't really feeling what I was doing. You know, I was just trying to get through. And it. I got into my, got through kind of board step one, which um, is sort of a nightmare from hell for anybody who's ever taken that mm-hmm. test, um, and that really took a lot out of me. But you know, but I kind of just made it through, and then I went right into my third year medical school. My first clinical rotation, which was surgery, at the University of Michigan Hospital, which is a you know it's a tertiary medical center. I mean, it's just a huge, high risk hospital, um, and you know they did not treat their t- trainees well. Medical students, residents were just treated like you know, we were basically indentured servants. And we, so I was working just ridiculous hours. I was, you know, there was a lot of bullying. There was just, it was such a negative environment. And I got to the end of that rotation and I just said, I, I'm not sure this is for me. Like, I don't, I don't see myself yeah. being able to survive in this environment. So I, I took a little time off and then I just wasn't ready to go back. So that was when I just said, well, I'm going to do something different. I, I was able to enroll in that, in the master's program for public health. Cause you know, it was a something I was interested in and it was also just a way to kind of keep my feet in the healthcare field, but really consider whether medicine was the right path for me. So, um, so I eventually did decide to go back and of course I got away from surgery and never looked at that that (laughs) uh, discipline. I guess stayed as far away from it as I could and, you know, eventually found, you know, just things that were much more aligned with who I am as a person you know, primary care, family
0: medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, so. Beautiful. Can you tell us, I mean, it it sounds like you're talking to the moral injury here of the actual process of here we are trying to become healers and physicians Mm -hmm. and yet we're getting beat up. I mean, I too had to take some medical leave during school and I went to naturopathic medical school. So most people don't Mm -hmm. assume, you know, but it was still like, hurry up, sit down. We're going to meditate for five minutes before you take the boards, you know, <laughs> you know, and trying to be both and. Yeah. Um, and interesting from my perspective, because I don't have administrators. We don't have mm-hmm. in naturopathic medicine, right. we can't go work in these hospitals, so we have to make it up ourselves, which has its own challenges because we're still getting paid by insurance companies mm-hmm. and there are pharmaceuticals. And when we're really looking at the business of medicine, do you honestly think that bringing doctors into administrative positions or is is that your, how how do we really make change? Well, that's a, that's a great question. (laughs) I mean,
2: I think the whole, you know, um, the whole orientation of medicine really needs to change. So I think you're right. Like bringing a doctor in as an administrator who then, the doctor then becomes the administrator. And I have seen that. Quite a lot, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so it just so it's a it's a culture shift. It's got to be a a massive culture shift. It can't just be, you know, a physician moves into the existing culture, and you know there has to be there really has to be a movement. And so, you know, speaking about moral injury, I think this is actually a concept that may gain it may help shift things because doctors are really talking about, you know, hey, we were trained. First of all, we went into this career, we went into this field with a passion with a mission with yeah. a, you know, I am doing, you don't go in, you don't spend You basically your entire twenties in school and training because you think you're going to get a good paycheck. I mean, yes, the pay is very good, but you basically lose an entire decade of your life in training. Yeah. And so you have to be really committed to what you're doing, um, and really love it and really see, you know, to really have that, that mission, um, that inter- internal internal mm-hmm. mission. So, um, so I think that, you know, doctors are now talking about the fact that when we are sitting with patients um, and we're not able to provide the care that we know they need, um, we're injured. You know, the, the term moral injury came from from uh, war, from soldiers basically having to do things that violated their own personal moral code. And, you know, so they would talk about it as burnout or PTSD, but, the, but then moral injury really got a lot of... Um, Traction and, and that concept really became kind of more appreciated. And I think physicians and other healthcare providers go through the same thing. You know, when we're, you know, sitting with someone and we know what they need, but we don't have the resources, we don't have the time, we don't have whatever it is to give to them, we're violating our internal moral code and that's that causes injury to people. And when you do that day in, day out, you know, you see twenty sometimes more patients a day and you're doing that over and over again. I mean it's it's a type of burnout, but I think it's deeper. You know, burnout is, you know, I've got to use this computer, which is a pain in the ass. I've got to, you know, (laughs) click this button 17 times to get one order put in, you know, I've got to, you know, finish all my charts within a certain you know, those are things that cause burnout. But the moral injury is that that relational piece that I cannot do what I know is right for this person because I don't have the time, the resources. So yeah.
0: I know you guys can all relate to that. Right. <laughs> I mean, in, in a way we can totally relate. And I feel really grateful because we have taken a paycheck cut yeah. in order to provide the kind of care that feels yeah. no less exhausting mm-hmm. um, and still really challenging. But we I would say, and Christina, I'm curious to hear what you think. We have a really high satisfaction rate. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. So the burnout is still something that, you know, not being able to pay attention to ourselves and instead taking care of other people is so high. But we do love, and I'm really grateful for being able to do it the way I want to do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah.
3: Agreed. I think it's, um, you know, coming from, uh, working in a methadone clinic and, and having that, you know, really feeling that like, I'm going to give you a medication when really I need to help you get a home and not, mm-hmm. and having 10 to 15 minutes with that person to be able to be like, well, let me just give you some antipsychotics. Cause then you won't care if you don't have a home felt, so broken to me and i knew that there wasn't only a certain amount of time that i was going to be able to do that and so coming and shifting into well i'm going to take a half an hour 45 minutes or an hour with somebody and i'm going to hold their hand and i'm going to Mm, talk them through something was really an ability to even though at the end of the week i do feel a little burnout because prior authorizations and charting and things i need to do for the insurance company it doesn't feel anything the same as it did not being able to give a patient what they need at that time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But we need a whole paradigm shift yeah. to be able to create that. And I think that I don't know, you know, I would love to hear where you're coming from and what you think we can do practically. Um, you know, I feel like pre-education, like maybe we should not be making doctors spend, Two, three hundred thousand dollars to get their education, so that they can come out and they can provide care from a place where they don't need to pay back these huge student loans. I mean, I think that that's a big piece. You know, moving and shifting around the big business of
2: healthcare is a big yeah. piece of it. Well, I think that to me is the biggest one. Like making taking the the business, the financial mm. goals out of the equation. I think you know, anytime you put a a dollar sign around somebody's healthcare. It's just, you know, one thing I always say to, an analogy I like to make is, you know, the way we run healthcare is like, um, you know, your house is on fire and you call, you know, you call 911, the fire department shows up and they ask you to like swipe your credit card before they start putting...
1: Oh my gosh.
2: The fire out. And that is that is exactly what we do to people when they show up in an emergency room with chest pain and you got to they have to like work out the finances before they get care. I mean, it is, it's just the absurdity. It, yeah, it's it's like if you were coming wrong. from another yeah. planet and you were looking at that, right. you would just say- Houston, how does that even
3: yeah,
1: Houston have a problem yeah
3: well you do you see the i mean I, you know i have a 16 year old so i see tiktoks all the time <laughs> mm-hmm. but if you're if you're watching things like that you'll see people they'll go to you know they'll go to the uk or their go place else and they'll be like it costs people in america 400 for a you know an inhaler and they're like what why like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, we have all these things that are set up that are so unique to the United States that I don't think are un- quite as unique to other countries. Not that other doctors in other countries aren't burned out. Well, of course they yes. are. But I also feel like when you're, when you're working for the bottom dollar, Right, and somebody is is uh, forcing your hand to create that that higher amount of income, right with fifteen minute visits with all those other things that are that are kind of forced on you we're
2: not we're just puppets, yes, well, and that's one of the big things that that uh, folks talk about with burnout and with moral injury is the loss of autonomy. Mm. Um, and you know so there's a lot of different ways where it's lost. I mean, one of them is within our you know, our, like, for example, in my practice, I mean, I work for a great group, but there's so many, um, so many sort of guidelines that I have to follow, you know, ways I have to practice, you know, whether it's my schedule, the type of patients I see, how many I patients, how many patients I see. I mean, we have some leeway, but, um, but that loss of autonomy in how you do what you do, especially as a professional, <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and particularly now, like, if you look at our electronic medical record system, um, I mean, there's just – it's such a busy environment. Like there's so much (laughs) happening there. But, you know, but one of the things is, you know, all these guidelines, which are, you know, these sort of standard guidelines for how you do what you do. And, you know, there's always things popping up like this patient needs, you know, whatever. And, you know, and you actually get measured on those things. And you get – you know, now in my group, some of our paycheck is oriented around like how well you do on some of those metrics. You know, so I I remember seeing a – I got a message on one of my patients that she was, it was recommended and this is, you know, basically we have like a population health person that's looking through patient's charts and well, so sent me a message. This patient needs a cholesterol medication at, you know, whatever intensity, you know, and I, I said, okay, I looked at her chart and I just thought she does not need a cholesterol medication. Um, you know, but it's all these things that are just, they're not looking at the patient. They're just looking at... The numbers and the and the medical record and there's not that you know oh this is actually a human being and let's take all the all the variables into account. So,
1: who was that guy you were talking about? Um, you said you'd watch. There was a video and he said that the those systems are really glorified cash registers. Like it's just like this glorified cash register. You put your patient's information into it and then it ka-ching. You know, it's just about the system and feeding money into the system. And I remember you mentioning that when we were talking. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Over lunch one day, he's a he he does a YouTube videos, a physician about moral injury. He talks about moral injury, but he just talks about. The healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Is that Z Dog? Z Dog. Yeah, I knew it. I do like
3: his stuff. I really do. He comes from a very practical place. And I think that Mm -hmm. we kind of need that. You know, it's like everybody else can say it, but until uh, somebody who's in the system is Mm -hmm. saying it, right? It's like nobody's listening, right? right? So that's why I feel like what you're saying here is so important to everybody that's working in that system. It's like we
0: need to hear this more often. So, what do we do about it? Like, that's the question. I mean, I've had patients come to me that are frustrated and say, if we all just dropped insurance, if we all just went to cash, if you dropped it and we dropped it and it was just between us, Mm -hmm. then wouldn't that be so much easier? Which really is true. I mean, there are some beautiful things that have come out of um, the whole system that safeguard us and our humanness, but nine times out of 10, it's... I don't even know what it's for. It's for actually f- making everybody worse off in so many mm. different ways. What do you think we should do? I mean, I I, I don't have a clear answer for that,
2: but I do think – I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I do think that getting the money out of the equation with the doctor and patient and, you know, while it's – you know, it's technically if, if they have insurance, there's not money there, but there always is, you know, because there's insurance – covering whatever you know piece of of uh of what they are being billed for um you know um they yeah the money is just always like hanging over over our heads and I you know honestly I'd, I don't know how it used to be but I think you know the old in the old days there just wasn't there wasn't that much done things didn't cost that much there wasn't the complexity you know so you could survive in a small town as a doctor, just being paid whatever people could pay you. And I yeah. think they did pretty well. Um, so it's it would be nice to kind of go back to that, um, but it's just, it, it can't happen because the, the way medicine is, is right now is just so much more complex and so many layers. Um, so I I do think that having, I mean, I, I am for a, a national health system, just a, a universal healthcare, but I am also not naive enough to say, oh yeah, that's going to fix everything because I work with Medicare patients a lot (laughs) Right, it's hard, you know, there's so much that's not covered. So I really think that there needs to be a reinvention of the whole thing, you know, that's not Medicare, that's not insurance, maybe that it, that's cash. um, But, you know, but again, I struggle with like having to ask somebody to pay before, you know, before I treat them for a heart attack or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I don't do that. I'm not an emergency doctor, yeah. but, um, but I do think that, you know, I, I do think that what would be nice is, you know, a national health system that is just government funded. Um, but that maybe has a little more physician involvement in terms of like how things are run and how, um, you know, how the, um, how the system basically is set in terms of, 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 the physicians, you know, and and their autonomy, because I think that that's one of the areas in, in the in the other um, in other countries where I've looked at their health systems. I mean, there's just not the autonomy; they're so restricted. I mean, yeah. it's like like you look at Kaiser, you know, it's that type of system. I mean, there's you know, there's just less it, it, there's less you can do, you know, outside of the box when you're like the type of medicine that you guys do and that I. That I like to do, which is functional medicine, which is you know where we really are thinking outside the box, and you really have to individualize the care to uh, to a patient. And you know, uh, but Kaiser system just really does not support that. Um, you know, you're really they're really looking at the population level, and you know what is the best for the majority of people, um, which is going to leave a lot of people out. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Where's the, the matchup between having a master's in public health and learning how to really treat on a bell curve compared to that individualized perspective? That's going to be an interesting one in your own head. Oh, it's very interesting. And I,
2: I I really fall on the side of it has to be the individual. I mean, um, you know, we were just talking about this this morning. Mm-hmm. We were talking about vaccines. Oh yes, you know, Um they were. Because you know, I—I I mean, I have very mixed feelings about vaccines. Um, but from a population standpoint, I think they're—they're they're the right thing to do. Um, and you know, I, and I do think that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for an individual. And so sometimes we have to make the, those calls, you know, and say that might be something that's challenging for that particular person. But from a population standpoint, it makes. A ton of sense, and you can make a, an argument about so many things, that same argument applies. Um, and so those are the kinds of you know judgment calls we have to make every day. Mm-hmm. I think we just had that conversation yesterday, <laughs> oh <laughs> my exact, God. exact same
3: conversation. <laughs> oh, interesting, we're all talking about the same thing in different places. Mm. I had my um, my daughter needed some vaccine, she's 16, and uh, and I said to my husband, he's like, why don't, why don't we, I don't understand why she doesn't have that vaccine. I said, well, she did get it. She just isn't immune to it anymore. We ran her titers. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which she
2: wouldn't do on everybody. <laughs> which
3: we wouldn't do on everybody, but the school requires it. And yeah. so I looked at him and I said, you're unvaccinated. He said, I am not. Oh my I gosh. said, you absolutely are unvaccinated. <laughs> he's like, I have all my vaccines. I have records of all of this. And I said, when was the last time you had a vaccine? He's like, I was a little kid. And I'm like, you're you you don't have that immunity mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. And he was appalled that he was unvaccinated. So now he's like, I'm not an anti vaxxer. Oh I'm my not God. an anti <laughs> And I'm like, oh everyone gosh, is sweetheart. Gosh, Nobody oh is gosh. vaccinated right now unless mm-hmm. they're being monitored for it. Mm-hmm. So it's all that that bigger picture of of what is required takes it out of the the communication between the patient and the doctor. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that the right thing for you? If you have four autoimmune disorders, I don't know. Yeah, let's talk about it. But you don't get to do that when you're you're managed what you're supposed to do on a fifteen minute basis. Mm-hmm. No, get in, no. get
2: them out. Yeah, it's true. And I think one of the conversations that we also need to have with with patients is what we need to have just in general is is you know we're always supposed to explain to them the risks mm, of mm-hmm. whatever particular treatment that we are proposing that we want to give them and you know i think the other side of that equation or that conversation is what are the risks of not doing something because right, there's always a risk that. to both sides yes. and so you can say well yeah this medicine is got is is risky you know it's it's got these side effects these potential kind of long term complications, but what is going to happen if we don't treat you with this yeah, or if right. we don't do anything, you know? And so I think that that's the conversation that I would like to see people have more, you know, because they need to know both sides. And so that really goes for, for vaccines, you yes. know, cause there's risk, but there's risks to not vaccinating too. So.
3: Right. Right. Every medication. I mean, even the, what you said before about the statin, but the cholesterol being at a certain level, I remember being in in um, community mental health at that point when that, that piece changed. And I think it became 205 for women or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And so all these people that I had that were fine before all of a sudden shifted into, well, we need to make sure that they're on a statin. And I went, oh, like I can barely right. deal with their depression right now. If <laughs> right. we put them on a statin, they're gonna be so depressed, they're gonna kill themselves. Like we can't do that. So it mm-hmm. became this like fight between what I thought was right and what the numbers said. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like that is the moral injury
2: right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're being pushed to do something that you, that you don't agree with. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I do think that getting physicians into a, a sit into a setting where they have all that, the autonomy mm-hmm. um, and they can really practice in the way that fits with, their moral code, or what they know is right, or what they believe is right, I think um, it does it does help with that quite a bit. Um, but you know, there's also downsides of doing an
1: in, running an independent practice and oh, you yes. know managing all that stuff. You know, Carrie, this morning we were talking about the aim, like, and I was thinking about like, what is the aim? Like, I like how Tara's bringing the question, which is, you know, what is the future of medicine, or what do you think needs to be changed, or what is the, what are the structural changes, but you know, there's a couple of things I think about. And one of the first things I think about is I think about what is the meaning of medicine mm-hmm. in the first place. And, you know, what is it that we mean when we go to see someone for healing? Because essentially what people need when they're coming to see you is they need healing. Mm-hmm. And when they're coming for healing, for any of us, when people are coming uh, for healing, I think about a couple of different things. But, uh, but one of them is that there there must be some way that we can assist them in, a, in accomplishing their aim. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm always looking at, well, what is the rupture? You know, what is missing for this person or what is most needed for this person to have the experience that they want to be having? But you were talking about some of the historical uh, things that uh, have been decided mm-hmm. uh, by the collective that are the aim. Uh, the hive mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and And then... But there is another aim, and I'm wondering what is the aim uh, in your perception? Um, Well, that's – yeah, that's a
2: great question. Um, We were – what we were talking about is the – and I was just looking this up. A friend of mine was mentioning it yesterday. It's the – about 10, maybe 15 years ago, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, came out with their – what they called their triple aim proposal. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was – was a framework that describes an approach to optimizing health system performance and the three, they, they called the, it the triple aim or the triple aims, um, improving the patient experience of care, including quality and satisfaction. Number two, improving the health of populations. And number three, reducing the per capita cost of healthcare. And so, I mean, a ton of organizations, I mean, that was like one of the big things in, you know, and healthcare in particularly in administration was this triple aim uh, framework and so everybody was focused on all those things but what we were talking about it i said where's the caregiver where's, right, the, where's the where's the clinician and
1: That's and a good question
2: you know and i think what ended up happening with that is there was this focus on these three variables which is you know patients populations and the cost and it's like this intricate puzzle that they were trying to fit together and i said it's like the doctors and the other you know, caregivers were were like the so the those uh, blank puzzle pieces that oh <laughs> this isn't working out here. We'll just yeah. slap the doctor in there <laughs> to like make it work. And the doctors really got yeah kind of the <laughs> they kind of got treated pretty badly. You know, in terms of like, well, the doctors can handle it. You know, they can and be I mean, just working hard, longer hours, harder, more more expectations. And I have seen that in my career. I mean, just the expectations on me have just you know, gone up exponentially without a commensurate increase in pay or you know time to do those things. I mean, they literally just keep slapping on, you know, more to do with no change
1: in and in, there is a time loss or, of life and, and a lot of are dying. Yeah. And you know, I think you've had three colleagues in the last how many? Mm-hmm. Maybe four or in the two last year. Last year, yeah. Died suicide. Know. Yeah. Oh. So it's just the pressure is.
0: The pressure is very, very high. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking about how my ex used to call my work transactional. And I used to get, um, I used to come home and he would say, Well, how many patients did you see today? And then he would do the math backwards of oh my and I used to get so frustrated because it's anything but transactional. In, in, it has nothing to do with that. It yeah. has nothing mm-hmm. to do with that. There's pieces of my heart, pieces of my soul. And the more you give and when you're set up for this work, maybe you're not that great at doing it for yourself, which means it becomes harder and harder. The self-care piece is is exhausting. And I remember when they came out with the 80-hour work week for medical students, they put a cap on that. And I laughed. I thought, that's it? Wow. Try being in naturopathic school and studying to be a midwife. It's you're in school all day and births all night. Mm -hmm. I lost a year and a half of my life and my friend and I had um, literally I missed two birthday parties. That were being thrown for me because I was at other births, mm-hmm. and um, my friend and I had these little notebooks that we'd keep in our pocket, and we thought, okay, if we got a dollar or a dollar fifty for every hour we work, we'd be rich, and we would just keep track <laughs> of it just to just to know how that's many great. hours we were out there in it, and so I think that's a that's something we're also trying to change. When I got into practice, I said I am not going to do what was done to me. Right. I'm not going to pass that forward. Which is hard. It's really challenging to not pass on the abuse that we received in our training. Um, right. So how to stop that? I mean, it's like the epigenetics of medicine, correct. right? Like what is the,
1: you know, what is the ancestral pattern? What is the pattern that's been passed down? It's pro- it's, you know, it used to be so beautiful. It used to be such an intimate. like I mean, I think of William Carlos Williams, you know, uh, who's a physician and a poet. you know, and he'd write poems on his prescriptive pad, you mm. know and give them to his patients or keep them. But uh, there's, there's just something about the practice of, of the healer and and the camaraderie and also uh, the fellowship and the deep connection to one another's humanity like the physician and the patient, the love really between a physician and a patient. And Carrie, I hear you talk about that when, um, you know, sometimes you'll say, oh, I, I got to see someone that I've been seeing for 15 years, you know, or, oh, I got to see a baby that I caught and now they're 16. Or I got to, you know, and, and just the power and the beauty of the love. And that's not something that is respected Honored, encouraged, and and is of the essence if we're going to cure our crisis of loneliness with connection and our our death toll because of lack of connection and lack of love. Yeah, no, I I love I love how you put that, and I think that
2: um, you know that that reconnecting with the with the soul and the heart um, is probably you know I mean back to your question is where I think medicine will be healed. You know, because I mean, we truly, it's broken right now. In fact, it's... Medicine will healed. be healed. I love how you said that. Broken. Yeah. I mean, and it's literally like being carried in pieces by, you know, by us, by doctors who are just like carrying these broken pieces around because we we care because we're dedicated. And, you know, and so this like idea that we can just put the doctors into this like broken puzzle, they'll fix it. It works because doctors are and you know all of us were we're dedicated like we, you yes. i mean we built g- yeah. went into this for a reason and we are just are motivated to help people and it, as far as i can tell that really that stays you know i mean we just can kind of continue on because you know you come out of the room and you're just like oh my god i'm exhausted i'm tired but then you know you go back in with the next person and you're just like you want to help
1: what can, you know? Yeah. what can i do what like, can i do how can help i help this person yeah.
2: so it just seems to you know, and it, you know, granted, like sometimes it's not always there. You know, you're you're tired, you're frazzled, you got two two minutes, and the person is just going on and on about you know whatever. And you know, it's not always a hundred percent, but but I do think that that passion is there for most people, and is what is what is keeping the system going despite everything. But um, but I do think getting at like how do we re inject heart into this practice into really into the system because. Like, providers have heart. Like, we all have heart and yeah. the soul in what we're doing. It's the system that is basically soulless as far as I can tell. It is the system. You're right. And and I think that there was
3: that piece of doing that 80 hour work week when it was 120 hours or when I think that's been passed down generation to generation because I think there's such an important piece to learn to be able to push through to that next patient Mm -hmm. or be able to get on, you know, get reading after you've been, you know, working for 10, 12 hours because you know that there's something out there that you're missing. Right. And so being able to push through that, but you, you, it's been translated instead of coming at it from heart, like to that, that it's something you just have to work 120 hours a week instead of no, you need to have heart so much heart that you want to know what's out there to make somebody better. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this really, um, I was listening to a talk by Sagata Sagada Guru, am I saying that wrong? The other day he's, Uh uh, yes. And he did this great talk about um how how physicians are basically at this point like we're basically just alexa right alexa give me the oh and, you my know, god can oh you my tell god. me you that's know brilliant. and then we look up that's online brilliant. like somebody comes in they meet all the criteria for depression i have to look oh online and i can give them an ssri you know or i can give an SSRI. like oh i have to look all these things and then he says the the what that's going to be a whole different piece of medicine and then we're going to separate off the healers mm-hmm. are yeah. going to separate, separate off to off. actually sit with people and heal them in, in oh. a human relationship, as opposed to like a machine telling you what to do. And and that's where we are, I think because mm. we're going to give that machine to the big companies Right, right now, um, uh, Primera and Regents each—I'm going to say five billion, but it could be five million because once it's past that, I don't understand the difference. <laughs> um, they have that much, and they're both nonprofits, right? And they—they they have that much in reserve, and yet they raised their rates this year. They raised their rates, and next year they're—they're they're changing reimbursement in 2021 for the for the providers, they're actually making us meet higher demands and they're going to give us less money. And they've already put that out there for 2021. And they have, again, 5000000000 billion, $5 million, doesn't really matter. It could be $5 trillion. Um They have a lot in, in reserves. In reserves. Yeah. And, yeah, and we're getting crunched because the people at the top want their money. Mm-hmm. That one percent wants mm-hmm. their money, and they're going to squeeze everybody underneath. And that's what we're feeling is because we're stuck in that in a moral dilemma. Do we
2: give them the money, or do we do the right thing? Well, and how do we, as doctors, get? How do we? You know, I mean, either we, you know, we strike, or you know, we unionize. I mean, that's been yeah. talked about. Or Swedish nurses. Yeah, how do we? get out how do we separate from that from that system that is just it's true it's without heart like there is nothing in that that has anything to do with humanity and um and it really people feel it you know they yeah. feel just lost yeah. in this crazy system and it's and they come to see you and of course they connect with their with their doctor with their healer mm-hmm. but you know but as
1: far as they, they step outside that door and it's
2: it's kind of a nightmare to be a patient
1: yeah
0: yeah is
1: yes. yeah and that's why I appreciate what you're doing, Tara is that you know you're spearheading an organization that has a place, a safe place, a nest of healing for people to heal, for them to be able to have every possible every possible healing modality available to them that, that you can find
0: you know it's it it has there's no other way for it to be right that's what the the world is calling for and I feel so grateful that I'm not afraid to say how much I love our patients we say it all the time we love them we actually make fun of the way Christina says it the staff does at least where they're like (laughs) she's gonna walk I love them and it's you know I had a friend who got written up in med school for hugging a patient goodbye and that is uh, just a day part of what we do with... Yeah, we need to touch. We more need. community to touch yeah, more nice. community. Mm-hmm. But I, I keep thinking about um, Ina Mae Gaskin, who's a really famous midwife who was um, part of... Uh, the Farm, I believe it was called, mm-hmm. um, where they did, they brought back midwifery in the 60s and 70s. And I heard her talk a bunch of years ago out here, and it was surprising because when you're talking to a group of midwives, you know, we're already, I'm a physician and a midwife, but, you know, we're on the other side. <laughs> it's, it's not exactly big business. It's it's hands off, really, mm. for healthy women and knowing the difference. But she said, you guys, what you need to do is start with the wealthy. And everybody's mouth sort of dropped like, what? What did she just say? Did Ina make Gaskin, who you know caught more babies in the back of a bus, <laughs> then tell us to start with the wealthy, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. And it's something I've certainly struggled with because the people we see can afford us. And we're spending more time. And that, to me, is a moral mm-hmm. dilemma that I have not faced in a little while, that I I know is something that is um, eating away at my own soul. Mm-hmm. That in order to keep the roof above my mm-hmm. head and to make my student aid payments and to just keep going. I'm not trying to be some bazillionaire by any means to just pay my bills. You know, and when you walk out of life with a quarter million dollars to start, you own nothing, but now it's time to work 80 hour work weeks to just pay those bills. You can't get ahead. It's very, very challenging. So I, I think about what does it mean to really, especially in a place like Seattle, to start with the wealthy and how much. Um, can we give away and how much is it the ability to be able to just get off of insurance completely mm-hmm. like to really do that and stop paying everybody else in between to fight with the insurance companies or to reimburse or I mean we're spending less time with folks and more times with numbers Here's your and medical portals yeah everything. yeah it's so tricky oh
2: yeah yeah I mean that's you know I I have that same struggle I mean I um you know I've I trained to do functional medicine, which is, you know, not a 15-minute endeavor um, with people. And, uh, you know, I I've, – but I've stayed committed to doing it in – within an insurance setting because, you know, I want people to be able to access it. And so but – and so I, I've stayed there, but I see that it's not – it's suboptimal – um, way to practice any medicine, let alone functional medicine. So, um, you know, it is, yeah, these are big decisions and trade-offs.
0: The individualizing part, you know, when you see 2000 patients a year, it's really hard in order to really understand and know people, you need to be able to talk with them. Mm -hmm. And when you finish a day after you've seen folks eight hours face to face, and then you have another, Two three hours of charting, and then there's forty more messages for you. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's a challenging, pl- yeah. and you want to give it to folks. Yeah, yeah. You love them. When it gets back to the, um, you know, what we were,
2: what I was, what I started with, which is the stories. I mean, that's you know, that's the whole reason that I went into medicine, and I think it's you know, such a crucial part of what we do is just letting people tell their story. And you cannot begin to know what's wrong with somebody until they tell their whole story. Because, I mean, it was, you know, when I started doing functional medicine and I was doing like, these hour-long visits for the first visit, I was amazed oh, at what I was able to learn yeah. just by spending the time. It was remarkable. and Because usually the, like, really crucial piece would come out, like – you know, at minute forty-seven or yes. something, like that. <laughs> right. never was in the oh, first. Yes. What do you
0: call that, Christina? The
3: door handle conversation. Oh, yes. the, door yeah, handle the door handle conversation. conversation.
2: Yeah, but right. But when I was doing those visits, I mean, they were structured, but it was you know. But I had a you know, get so much information just by letting them freeform talk, and then I could sort of focus in on well, you said you know X, Y, or Z, or like you moved here in nineteen you know seventy-four, and you know what I mean. Like those things were just so. Uh, incredibly important and Mm. allowed me to hone in on, oh my God, I think this is your problem. And I would never have got to that if I wasn't spending the time. And of course, you know, I'm not my, my visit times have changed. And so I know I'm missing a ton. And even if you bring them back for, you know, another half hour visit, it's not the same because they just get into the flow and they, they start going and,
0: um,
2: but yeah, and it's so, it, yeah, it's funny to think about, though, because, you know, the heart, it's, it's like the heart and the soul, it's no problem. Like for, I'd say probably every every clinician doesn't have a problem getting there. It's just everything around what we're doing that is kind of keeping us from, you know, from accessing that and that connection. And you were saying, and right when we started, or maybe it was before we started, just about the you know, the impact of the relationship on healing. I mean, and that's what's lost too oh, yeah, in all these, you know, monetary equations is, you know, the fact that, what did you say? It was the placebo effect was that much better in patients who had a good
0: relationship. It goes from 40% to 60% if you like your provider and your provider likes you.
1: So it's astonishing!
0: I love telling patients that. By the way, I'm like, so do you love me now? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> do you love yeah. me I love now? You more. Okay, I Here, love you fill this survey. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, and that's great. I'm also really proud. We spend 75 minutes with a new patient. No, that's great. Yeah. And um, and we still, it's it's like some folks need to come back every t- week or two mm-hmm. to be able to understand who they are, and then for us to be able to treat them appropriately. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's true. It hurts when we don't.
1: And we're protectors. I mean, really, we're protectors of people's emotional, spiritual, and physical health in our work. And, you know, so, you know, if I can protect my own, I can protect theirs. And But when I think about currency, when I think about, you know, charging, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't really want to charge. But people have always charged for things. You know, there's always been exchange, a fair and equitable exchange for anything. What I found in my own practice is that I can I can see three patients or three sometimes four this last month I saw four uh, people at no cost and then everyone else I you know they have either a sliding scale or they have full cost but it's one of the ways because for me it's like how can I give back you know what in what ways can I give back and I also have a nonprofit arm uh, for SOI that you know, takes care of, you know, different things for different students. But I feel that, you know, for me, it's important that I'm just able to give because I love what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, it's like that patient, that client, I'm seeing them just because I love what I do. I want to be totally of service and they are not going to pay me a dime, you know, but, you know, they often bring a gift, you know, usually I'll just say bring a gift that you feel is of of equal but you're doing it because you love it. Not there's there's like no there's nothing in it for me except my love, right? So I think that's an interesting way. And so how do we protect that that essence of our own medicine and you know what medicine really is to us as individuals? In addition to what it means to the collective or what it means to our clients or our patients or you know, I think the a, a really
2: a really good place to start. You know, in terms of this conversation, is is with that the question of why? You know, so it's like why, why is why does the system exist? You know, like why is it? What is what is its purpose? And and send for us, like why why do we do what we do? Why are the patients doing what they're doing? You know, and so kind of getting at like what is everybody's why? I think I, you know, I, I there was that um, TED talk. Uh, Start with why that I just loved, um, and it's it's one of my favorites. Name. Simon Sinek. Simon Sinek. Yeah, I and like it, that he one. applied it to businesses, you know, and it was, oh. you know, so you start with why, and it's the why, the the what, and the how, and oh, sort yeah. of the 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 golden circle he called it. Yeah. and so, you know, everybody knows like um what for organizations like everybody knows what they do and everybody knows how they do it, but most people and most organizations don't know why they're doing what they're Mm -hmm. doing and and he then you know sort of said well this circle aligns with um neuroanatomy and so you know the outside was the i think the outside was the either the what or the how but basically the two outer layers are your cerebral cortex you know your your thinking brain um and that's the what and the how but it's the why which is the very center which aligns with our limbic system which is our our animal brain and that's he said that's all decisions are made there you know, all of our decisions come from our animal brain, which is driven by by emotion and feeling, and you know things that you can't really think your way through. And you know that's why he said so. Organizations who know their why are the ones that, that are succeed. Yeah, and oh, so I yeah. sometimes apply that to myself, and I apply that to patients. You know, and they come in, and and I say, well, you know, they they have X, Y, or Z problem, and I say, well, why? do you want to get well? Like, why do you want to address this? Like, what does that mean to you? Like, what does that look like? It's beautiful, Carrie. When people are, you know, I had this one patient, I don't know, it was probably like two weeks ago, and she just was obsessing about, she was afraid of developing diabetes. And just, you know, I want to check my insulin and I want to go to this diabetes class and I want to figure out how to like change how I'm eating and da, 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 da. And, you know, but I can't do it. Like, I've been doing all these things and I can't change. And I said, well, because you're focusing on, like what you have to do and how you're gonna do it, but you have no idea why you're doing it, you know, right. and you're operating from from a place of fear. And she's like, "Oh yeah, you know." So I mean, it was just, I think it just people operate better when they are driven by their their kind of emotion and their and their that that limbic drive. Um, you know, he like I think his analogy was or his example was Apple. Like everybody buys Apple products. They're not really any better quality. They're not right. They actually don't run right. even as well as as uh, Microsoft or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But everybody just wants one. Like, I mean, if you go around the room here, we all have Macs, we all have mm-hmm. <laughs> we all have iPhones. And he's because like, Apple knows people People are buying why they do what they do, which is they're innovators and they're kind of technology disruptors and, you know, people like that, you know. And so they're, they line up to buy those products. They're not really any better products. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought it's a – so I've, I've found that to be a really useful – framework to apply to a lot of things but definitely to patients to myself in terms of like what i'm doing but i think it'd be a great tool to use with organizations particularly healthcare organizations like why are we doing this yeah you know and then kind of develop your what and your how from that mm-hmm. and do start with the what and the how
3: i love i love that simon Sinek. And I watched it, and I came in, and it was probably a year ago, and I came into our, we we were having weekly meetings at that time, and I said, what is our why? Like, tell me our why. (laughs) And I was like, explain it all to them. I'm like, what's our why? And then we came up with our mission statement, which was to be the change in healthcare
1: yeah.
2: Beautiful.
3: To make it different, it. to mm-hmm. not be the same old that we see everywhere else, and to give that heart to healthcare. And I think that that was our, what we ended with mm-hmm. yeah, to be the heart it. in healthcare.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's great. Yeah. And I think it makes it easier to work through the hard stuff, you know, the burnout and the long hours and the, because you have that, you know, why you're know. doing it
0: and we're doing it together mm-hmm. yeah. which yeah. feels really beautiful when you have a great team and it's a community effort it's the best
1: Yeah. yeah. nice village
0: <laughs> wonderful yeah. well we've got uh, some more future medicine to come that's for sure and <laughs> yep. apparently we are the future we've been waiting for yes. yes. i've heard that yes. a few times it's it's cutting edge, <laughs> cutting edge. <laughs> mm-hmm. wonderful so if you had one wish or something that you would want to make sure You'd want to share with either future providers, providers of tomorrow, and/or patients. What would you What would you wish for, folks? Wow. Um,
2: I guess you know. I I really. Um, I think for providers, I really wish for um, just some peace and just. I feel like there's just this layer around us of I don't even know what this just yelling. You know, just yelling like different oh. things all all mm-hmm. the time that just get in the way of that heart kind of coming through in what we're doing. So I wish for that to just like fall away, and for all of us just to be just us and the and the patient, or you know, the uh, us and our team and the patient, you know, but just without all the bullshit, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, for patients, I mean, for for people, I just I I really wish for. And this we didn't even get into this, and we were talking about it on the way over here. But um, just a, a healthier environment, like a healthier planet. Oh, I mean, and this man, is like yes. a this could be a topic of a whole nother discussion of just how the the dying planet is making us sick, and how you know how do we how do we address, address that? Um, the you know just the impact of of all that, the, all the basically the toxicity that we're surrounded by, and how that's impacting us, and so. Um, I really wish for that to, there to be a shift in that.
0: Hallelujah. Mm. Yes. Amen. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can we have a prescriptive poem, please? Yes. I think that would be great fun. This
1: is uh, Love All Creation. This is from a book, uh, Life Prayers from Around the World, uh, Elizabeth Roberts and Elias Amidon. Um, Love All Creation. The whole of it and every grain of sand love every leaf every ray of creator's light love the animals love the plants love everything if you love everything you will perceive the divine mystery in things and once you have perceived it you will begin to comprehend it ceaselessly more and more every day and you will at last come to love the whole world with an abiding, universal love. Blessing. Blessing.
0: Fyodor Dostoevsky. Wonderful. Thank you, every beautiful one. Blessing. Blessing. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Village Medicine Podcast. To learn more about our clinic, check us out, villagemedicineseattle.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Village Medicine Seattle or on Instagram at Village Medicine.